On this week's Texas Tribune Tripcast, we talk about the teacher pay and school finance proposals circulating in the Texas Ledge, the finger pointing over the voter citizenship review, and what Beto O'Rourke might face in a Democratic presidential field. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tripcast sponsors, the Alabama Cushada Tribe of Texas, presenting live stream coverage of Conversations About America's Future, a collaboration of South by Southwest and the Texas Tribune, and Texas A&M University, where research is being taken from Earth to Mars. Visit fearlessfront.com to learn how Aggies are looking forward on every front. Do I have to talk you in their head? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a long Hello, this is Amon Bathija here on Thursday, March 7th with the Texas Tribune Tripcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. It was a lot easier when you were on paternity leave. <laughs> wow. Welcome back. I don't mean for us, I meant for you. I'll, I'll be saving that for the lawsuit. <laughs> I meant for you. You were dealing with that one baby as opposed to these three babies. Okay. It's okay. One our head, baby. Our head one of, major our head baby. Our will will edit that out in post. <laughs> you mean easier for us. Wow. I'm going back to my office. Okay. <laughs> Uh, public education reporter uh, Elias Wabey. Hello, I'm glad to have you back. I'm Thank on. you. <laughs> Was that so hard? Also, he pronounced your name right. That's <laughs> and demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Welcome back, Amon. Thank you. As always, we take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tripcast. Uh, Aliyah, we are going to talk to you about public ed, like we do now every week. <laughs> but before that, uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, Governor Abbott posted his appointments for the UT uh, Assistant Board of Regents. And Evan has thoughts. Well, well he, he did. I mean, I don't have thoughts. I, I just, I, I, I'm, <laughs> but I want to talk about Evan it. Has, Evan has interest. <laughs> you guys go away. I'll be back in 20 minutes. Just, I'll, I'll talk about it. So, it, you know, it's four of the nine. Remember that you had three who were up to be replaced, and then you had the departure, unexpected and early, of Sarah Martinez-Tucker, the chair. So there were four opportunities for the governor to fill seats on a board of nine. So it's effectively half of the board, right? Oh. I mean, he really is putting a mark on it. Um, departing the board are Ernie Aliceda, who ran unsuccessfully for judge in South Texas, but is, is from the Valley and had served on that board. Um, you had uh, uh, Jeffrey Hildebrand, who is a Houston... Uh, a very large political donor and has Hill Corp, which is a big uh, energy uh, company. And you had Paul Foster, who was the former chair of the board, uh, himself coming out of an energy uh, business, um, oil and gas, but was from El Paso, uh, co you know, fairly conservative political donor, um, served on the board for a long time. So those three are cycling off, and then Sarah Martinez Tucker goes off, she's fourth. So replacing those four are Nolan Perez, who is a, a Brownsville uh, gastroenterologist, supporter of the governor's, um, uh, you have uh, Kelsey Warren, the CEO of, of, of Energy Transfer. That's uh, the one that jumped out at me. Wh whose pipeline project in Texas has been somewhat controversial, in West Texas particularly, but who is also one of the largest, most prolific Republican political donors and f supporters of the governors. Not that there is an A to B there, but just stated as fact, as a fairly large political donor, as both Paul Foster and Jeffrey Hildebrand had been in advance of their appointments to the regions. You have Christina Melton Crane, who's the former chairwoman of the board of the Texas Board of Criminal Justice, former president of the Dallas Bar, for whom a prison, I believe, in the TDCJ is named. Criminal justice reform advocate, runs a nonprofit called Unlocking Doors in Dallas. Um, so Kelsey Warren, Christina Melton Crane, uh, Nolan Perez, and then the fourth is Jody Giles, who until recently had been, a, I believe, a region at the University of Houston, um, is, is an executive or the executive of Transwestern Insurance, African-American 
uh, a business leader, uh, part of the governor's business leadership council. It's a fairly diverse group. It is also a fairly um, modest group in terms of its ideological bearings in the sense that these are all conservatives, these are all Republicans, but they're not at the farthest end of the farthest end. This is not a political class of appointees whose appointments taken together appear to have to be sending a message in terms of where the governor is or where he believes higher ed should be. It's kind of a business as usual group. You know, the Warren one will probably get some hackles up in the community of environmentalists and others who oppose the pipeline project. But he's exactly the kind of person who gets appointed to the regions. Duh. And then the other ones are kind of interesting choices. It's, you know, all region appointments are interesting, but the UT system region appointments, because of what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years, tend to get more attention. Yeah, and a couple of years ago, I felt like we were just talking about the regions every other week. Uh, and, and it definitely was. <laughs> regions and voter turnout and like all the stuff that you guys care about. You know, I have my list. It's a small list. But, but I do think this is significant. And so we'll see what happens in nominations. Mm -hmm. We'll see if the, these are embraced. What Ross Ramsey's reaction was, Ross, our colleague, who knows more than all of us uh, combined, says is... Um, uh, that, that these are L-Type appointments. Kevin L-Type, the former state senator from East Texas, who is now the chair of the UT Regents after the Sarah Martinez-Tucker departure, he is kind of a person of modest temperament. He's a no-sharp-objects-on-the-table mm -hmm. kind of guy. He's like an all-business kind of guy. And so Ross, hearing these appointments, said these are L-Type appointments. They're pretty much like all-business, no-sharp-objects-on-the-table, kind of modest temperamentally. So we'll see. All right, and... Now to our weekly segment More of the More interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so if you, if we've been talking about public ed just about every week, but this week in particular was a pretty big one. Uh, yep. What jumped out <laughs> at you just starting off? So uh, this week was notable, mostly Monday and Tuesday were notable because uh, the Senate and House both advanced on what seems like their, their main proposals for um, what school finance reform means for them. You know, I, I think we've been talking from the beginning about, yes, they all want to reform school finance in some way, but that actually means really drastically different things um, <laughs> depending on the person. And those hadn't really uh, come to a head until I think Monday and Tuesday. Um, the Senate ended up uh, unanimously passing its uh, $5,000 uh, teacher pay raise bill. Um, and then the next day, the House unveiled its school finance reform proposal, which um, you know is basically what was in its proposed budget. So about six billion for um, you know things that were in the school finance commission report, and then about three billion for property tax reform, um, which you know would be I think reducing recapture by about three billion um, through a property tax compression. Uh, and you know I think the the speaker. Um, made news and definitely what we led with in our coverage was, you know, he was asked uh, a series of questions about the Senate's teacher pay bill. Um, and he basically said, you know, that isn't really a school finance plan. Um, ours is a plan. Um, and, you know, the Senate's is, is uh, providing pay raises for a limited group of educators. The houses would um, give superintendents and local districts flexibility to um, increase pay as they wish or do you know take advantage of uh, grants or allotments to um, provide merit pay programs or you know thank, thank god all this kumbaya is over it was yeah. so boring <laughs> we, we have really hit the end of everybody locked arms skipping through the daisies right i mean i think so i think you know there's still 
holding on to, like we got a, a statement from the Lieutenant Governor saying that, um, you know, the, the chambers have different ways that they're going about it, but it's still, you know, like trying to still keep the, <laughs> the kumbaya, um, I don't know, appearance. It, it even felt like this point was kind of inevitable. Even before the session, they kept talking about we're all on the same page, yeah. but they wouldn't actually talk about what was on that page. Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's clear, you know, when you have actual policies and those policies are different, we're not on the same page <laughs> and it's hard to make that argument. And this, I think the speaker's involvement in this to the degree that you described is interesting because he's telegraphing to anybody who thinks the House is going to roll over for the Senate, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Where, um, where do these fall in terms of what the governor has in any way displayed in terms of his preference? Yeah, so the governor, I think, has been relatively vague. Um, which is not surprising. And, you know, he, I think, obviously his plan for uh, property tax reform was was pretty specific. And um, right now that seems like it'll be closer to the Senate's plan, though we don't have a final um, bill from the Senate that might include uh, some of the actual language and what they want to do but for we're, property we're taxes. We're going to get one, right? We're, yeah. we're expecting a tailored we bill. We are the expecting... The deadline bill. <laughs> the yeah, deadline bill is tomorrow, right? Yeah. Right, and so... At the very least, there has to be a bill filed with some kind of caption that could be the Senate school finance plan. Right. But it, it could also just be like a blank, a blank bill with two sentences and say, you know, check back here later. TBD. Yeah. I, our, um, like what we've sort of heard that is, uh, is going to be in it is whatever is their like actual language on property tax reform um, and then some like outcomes-based funding, like maybe merit pay. Um, policy. So the house not, not to cut off the conversation previously about every teacher gets a raise, but essentially on top of, right? right. It wouldn't be instead of, it would be on top of. It would be on of. top of, yeah. Well, and the House plan's got some ideas that I'm just wondering, are, are they, do, is the House fully behind it? And is the Senate going to sign on like, a, I believe a more pre-K is a big part of the House plan. Yeah, the House plan um, would... Uh, put in, I think, full day pre-K for uh, eligible fourth or four-year-olds. Um, and uh, it would allow districts that can't, so it, there's a lot of things to like appease rural districts, you know, mm -hmm. that's been the, the debate all along. Um, and so if you, if you don't have enough uh, facilities to actually run a full day pre-K program, then you don't have to offer it, but you have to get permission. But yeah, essentially it would be full day pre-K um, mm -hmm. and would provide uh, the funding that school districts need for that. And does it um, say where the funding will come from? Um, I mean, that's part of the the six billion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's it's uh, putting a it basically uh, gives school districts um, a, an extra weight for early reading that can mm -hmm. be used for full day pre K. And is there is it too early to tell? Is there any sense that is the Senate crafting something like that Unclear. on pre K? I mean, mm -hmm. I think yeah, I think that would be a big. Um, potential divide to look well, I at. I asked Larry Taylor, didn't I, when he was here with us a couple weeks ago, are you for full day pre-K? Didn't he kind of say yes? He sort of endorsed it right. in, in theory. But he also said that, you know, <laughs> that also they would puppies. come out with a bill at the same time and all the, you know, he said a lot of things. It's an evolving <laughs> landscape. Yes. <laughs> right. I don't know if you could ever say you're against full day pre-K. <laughs> well, you remember the, the you I know, mean, I, I remember when they, somebody called it godless socialism and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> this, is a, this is, thank godless. This is great. You know, I love drama. Let's have some drama. But, but so there are people who believe, and in fact, Jonathan Stickland, when we talked mm -hmm. to him earlier in the session, talked about, you know, effectively kids being ripped from the arms of their right. parents. So mm -hmm. there isn't a, a... There is a faction that's mm -hmm. anti-full day pre-K. A faction that doesn't believe for in sure. it. Right. Yeah. 
So I guess every all eyes are just on the Senate and waiting for that bill to yeah. come down. I mean, that will really give us the the full picture. And what the lieutenant governor said was that um, SB2, SB3, and SB4 would give the Senate's full picture on what they want to do for school finance and property tax reform. We're missing that one piece of the puzzle. <laughs> it's a pretty big piece. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Alexa, you went away for a week mm-hmm. and did absolutely nothing on work. You, did, you were just enjoying yes, yourself. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> Somehow stories showed up at the byline, but <laughs> th- that was magic. Um, and the voter citizenship review st- is still going on. Can you tell us where it's at? Yeah, so we are, I think we're in like week six or seven of it, um, but basically we're in the finger-pointing phase of it um, as David Whitley sort of continues to face a uncertain path to confirmation in the, in the Texas Senate. Um, we really saw uh, Greg Abbott sort of just, I mean, I think it's fair to say throw uh, Steve McCraw, the director of the Department of Public Safety under the bus over flaws in this data. Um, DPS, they were the ones who had given SOS, the Secretary of State's office, the data that they then matched with the voter rolls and found people who at some point in the last couple of years had said they were non-citizens. Obviously this data did not account for people who become naturalized citizens, which is a very common thing in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on top of that, there was real errors in the data beyond that, in that they basically ignored a citizenship flag in there. And now Abbott says it is Steve McCraw's fault. Um, he used the word despicable, didn't he? Yeah, I don't know that's, that he... That's pretty I, harsh. I don't believe he said that Steve McCraw was despicable, but that the errors in the data were That despicable. the errors were... Yeah, but, but which, whichever sure. he said was despicable, the word despicable is not, you know, there's no hedging there. There's yeah. no wondering, and, how does he think? And yeah. McCraw was appointed by Perry years ago. Yeah, I mean, he's a longtime director of of DPS, but obviously has very much been aligned with Abbott on a lot of his sort of mm-hmm. priorities on public safety standpoint. Especially in the border. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he was sort of championing a lot of what Abbott wanted down there. And Whitley used to work in Abbott's office, I believe? Yes, and Whitley is, is a longtime aide of Abbott. Um, most recently, he was deputy chief of staff. He did appointment for him. He was in the attorney general's office. So, I mean, I think this is clearly like Abbott's guy. Um, and Abbott seems to be sort of, you know, very much so trying to get him through this process. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that in some of his blaming of DPS, you know, he's sort of conflating the two major ways in which this data was flawed um, and sort of setting aside the fact that SOS knew that naturalized citizens would be in this data so and seemingly decided to move forward anyway. So just to back up so our, reader, our listeners can follow along. Um, so Secretary of State sent out this this voter list to all these different election offices around the county, they got the information from from DPS. They got um, possible, quote-unquote, possible non-citizen data from DPS, and then they matched that with the voter rolls, and those are the names that were sent out. And the DPS data was flawed. Yes, because it was not up to date. It did not account for naturalizations. Um, And then there was just like a a key miscommunication that basically led the Secretary of State's office to ignore a part of the data that showed people who had already proved they were citizens. So is there responsibility on the Secretary of State's office having received that data as flawed as it was? Should the Secretary of State's office have known or acted differently Mm -hmm. reasonably? Could one reasonably say that they made a mistake that compounded the mistake of DPS? I mean, one of the things that has come up is that it took the counties about a day and a half to figure out that there were big errors in this data. And so one of the questions that I've started to hear from people is, was there no quality check at all? Because it took a local official in Williamson County such a short window of time. Why didn't the SOS do the same exactly. quality check? Yeah. Was it McClellan County that all the names were... 
Yeah, apparently <laughs> they had a list about 366. Um, within two days, SOS called and said, actually, none of these folks need to be reviewed. Um, and, you know, but again, the errors on this list are just a portion of it. I think the numbers are up to 25,000 of the original 98,000 um, that were on the list. But, again, sort of lost in this are the naturalized citizens who were flagged So, anyway. so what is the calculation here? The Senate needs to do two-thirds vote to approve Whitley. Mm-hmm. They don't have two-thirds unless at least one Democrat, at two least Democrats. one Democrat switch. Well, couldn't they, like, Eleven one Democrat... blocks if they're all there. Right, so you could have one Democrat switch, and you could have two go off to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Sure. And then they call a vote when those people are waiting in line at Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've sort of tried to get a better sense of where the Dems are at. The latest I've heard that they've been willing to say, not even publicly, but, you know, sort of quietly, is that everyone's holding together, um, you know, and I think there are a lot of folks who are making calls to ensure that, but you know, we it just takes one to switch and then one being off the floor. Um, and obviously, you know, we all see how session works. There are often people who are off the floor off for doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. and so I think um, it's the sort of thing that will, you know, if it comes up, will it'll be very, very much so sort of. Uh, planned for when someone is out, and they'll be sort of taking notice of that. But I will say, if they do call a vote and it backfires and um, Whitley is voted down, he has to leave that office immediately. And so, um, you Because the other option is to not call a vote. He serves for the entire session, and then at the end of the session, he's no longer in the Right, job. right, exactly. So I think, I think if Republicans are going to call up the vote, they need to be sure that they have the votes, because otherwise he's gone. This is reminding me, I think it was about 10 years ago, voter ID was up in the Senate, and I'm forgetting the senator who came from his hospital bed and just Mar- like, Was it Mario Gallegos? That was it. That was right, it. And he had his hospital he died. bed right outside right. the Senate chamber just waiting because if he wasn't, if, if they brought up the vote without him there, it might have passed. My fan fiction after what happened on the floor of the Senate this week is that Whitley goes down and Matthew McConaughey is named Secretary uh-huh. of State. <laughs> And, and his new rule is that jeans are allowed in the Senate. <laughs> I, I wondered where, what, I, I was outraged to see that they made an exception. You know, You're not ever, even on the Senate floor. What if you wore jeans? Do you have of the matter, well, Alexa. The Senate rules are a flat circle, that's it. This is like, this is like the worst true detective plot line ever. But, but I, did, I did think that the Matthew McConaughey blip of enthusiasm on the Senate floor was charming. It reminded me that we're all human. And we can go back to being in, you know, inhumane, but... Um, so what do you think? Whitley going to get in or not? What's your guess? I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I have not heard that Democrats are actively flipping. And if they are, I don't think they're going to make that public. Um, I will say they're sort of in a tough position. You know, the Democratic Party came out against the Whitley nomination. And I think if one of them, there's not a lot of cover for any of them. Well, like to all 12 have specifically said, I am opposed to this we oppose, Yeah. And I think, you know, so it would be point, a real flip if they, if yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there are a lot of folks watching and you can say what you want about the democratic party and its effectiveness, but, um, you know, voting rights is a key issue for them. And it seems like an, an easy no for, for folks, at least politically. And Nancy Pelosi and Lloyd Doggett had a press conference in Austin mm-hmm. this week about partially about this issue. Yeah, they were basically using sort of the bungling of this review um, to highlight the need for House Resolution 1, which is a, you know, expansive election reform bill. It sort Mm. of creates protections from voter purges. Um, It calls for automatic voter registration. Mm. Um, Texas doesn't even have online voter registration. So, but they've, you know, the key takeaway was this is sort of another example of Republicans undermining the Constitution and the right to vote. So um, sort of upping the ante a little bit more on any Democrat who might want to 
vote yes for Whitley. Do you get a sense that this is going to be one of those things that nationally Democrats kind of bring up throughout the year, even if it kind of is settled in Texas as an example of disenfranchisement? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms, you know, we are still waiting on a ruling from a court in San Antonio about whether Texas should be put back under federal oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's the census question. There's just yeah, so many I mean, issues around mm-hmm. this, right? The broader, this, this definitely fits within the broader context that Democrats are absolutely trying to um, create around whether Republicans, you know, can adequately represent people of color who are most likely affected by this. So what about the question of vote? I mean, I, this is, so you know, we have this move now on a parallel track with the death penalty you know, which for a long time, it was a black and white issue, you know, it was one side was, another side, there's no middle ground, no place to go. You have Republicans who are talking openly about, you know, we need to look at the death penalty again and all that. And, you know, even one person innocently executed is too many. Is there a conversation here where people who are upset about the voter purges are nonetheless willing to stipulate that even one person voting who should not be voting is too many? And is there a way to find common ground on the question of voter fraud as opposed to it being this issue that blows everybody's... Harmony. I, I don't think that the Democrats who have been the loudest about this disagree that one unlawful vote is too many. I think the issue is how do you go about ensuring that? And given the history of state leaders to sort of spread unsubst- unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud, there is a lot of skepticism going on, especially when you use a method that inevitably is going to affect predominantly people of color and voters of color. And it's really a political argument more than anything else because the theory here is we're trying to depress or or disincentivize turnout. Yeah, and I think that the difference between this and something like the death penalty um, debate is that the the state is changing and the population change that's happening does not favor Republicans. um, And they're while I would never say that they are, you know, actively unintentionally doing this, I think it helps the argument on Democrat side that they're not, that they can't get on the same page and that's why they should be in power. That would be their argument. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. The Texas Bankers Association represents about 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks and the heart are the heart of the community at texasbankers.com. And the Texas X's, Janelle Chavez, is expanding access to care for medically underserved communities. To learn more about students who are changing your world, go to texasx's.org. Uh, Evan, this weekend, you're going to be pretty busy with South by Southwest, and uh, how many how many uh, kind of big names are coming to Well, so we, we've put together this collaboration with, with uh, South by Southwest where we have nine people coming to talk about the future of America. It's not really a conversation stated as such about 2020, although you have a lot of people on that stage who are Please running. Please don't make news. I'm the on-call reporter. Please don't do it. <laughs> right? Exactly. You know. if, so if Amy Klobuchar suddenly breaks out her comb and eats a salad, we'll have a breaking you news can, alert. Is sure, that it? Um, sure. uh, you know, it, w- the idea here is, as with everything else we've done for nine and a half years, let's get people uh, in front of a conversation about all of our priorities. And our, in this case, would mean America's, not just Texas's priorities. And so we want to get uh, people in a room and on a live stream. We'll be live streaming this entire weekend, and we've got nine people coming in to talk about their vision for the future. A number of those, in fact, are running for president. Um, some have considered it or are considering it, and then at least one is not there because he's running, but he's a surrogate for the incumbent. And that is House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. It's kind of like Kevin McCarthy for the defense, Your Honor. (laughs) This case is going to be laid out, and then Mm -hmm. McCarthy's at the end of this, literally the ninth of nine, is going to make an argument on behalf of the the administration and the Trump agenda and the reelect of the president and vice president. But we have um, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, John Hickenlooper, 
Pete Buttigieg, Jay Inslee, and Julian Castro are the Democrats. We have John Kasich and William Weld, the Republicans. Weld, who is, uh, looks to be challenging Trump in the primary. Kasich, whose name is mentioned as a potential challenger. Uh, and then we have um, uh, Leader McCarthy. And we have nine different, it's really 10, because mm -hmm. in one case, it's two journalists interviewing Leader McCarthy. But it's basically, we have, everybody's being interviewed by somebody different. Mm -hmm. And you know, the editor of the Huffington Post and the editor of BuzzFeed, um, senior political reporter for Vox, Kara Swisher of Recode, Anna Marie Cox of the With Friends Like These podcast. People are coming in to do these conversations. It should be really interesting. And it's, you know, 60-minute conversations, long-form discussions. Which means none of these people will, get, will be able to get by with just a pat answer. Well, I think, you know, there's an argument in favor of depth and breadth as opposed to sound bites always. Again, that's fundamental to what we've done for all these years is you give people an opportunity to not only explain themselves but to be asked to defend the positions that they take in ways that require them to, to, to talk at length and to talk with complexity, you know. We always like it better when people talk in paragraphs. One person noticeably absent from the list is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, I'm assuming he declined. He was invited. As many people who are not on the list were invited, I had conversations in putting this thing together with Senator Harris's office with, and, and team and mm -hmm. uh, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Booker, Sherrod Brown, who as we sit here as of like 20 minutes ago, announced he's not running for president, so no wonder he declined to be part of it. <laughs> um, with Congressman O'Rourke, with Senator Sanders, you know, we reached out to a ton mm -hmm. of people who are not reflected on here, and in many cases it was scheduling. In the case of, of uh, Congressman O'Rourke, who will be at South by Southwest this weekend uh, for the premiere of the documentary made about his campaign. It's on uh, Saturday morning at 1130. Running with Beto, I think. Running with right? Beto is the name of it. He is coming for that, but I'm I'm told that he is leaving immediately after. He's not doing any press that weekend of the sort that would involve a long interview of the kind mm -hmm. that we're talking about. And I talked to him a couple times in the course of this, as well as people on his campaign, and said, I think you should do this. And after I found out that he didn't do it, I texted him that I was disappointed that he wasn't doing it. And he called me and he said, disappointed is what your father says when he's angry at you. And I said, no. Wow. <laughs> I'm legitimately wow. disappointed. Someone's uh, prickly. I'm, no, no, no. I mean, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, I'm legitimately disappointed because it would have been fun to have him there. I mean, look, it'd be a moment. And whatever his plans are, I expect we're going to know them any minute now. And it would have been fun to be a part of that whole, you know, whirlwind. But uh, whatever. Um, these are going to be great conversations. Mm. I mean, the fact is these will really give us an opportunity to hear from these people in an intimate setting. And remember that when Senator Gillibrand was here a couple of weeks ago, it was said this was the arrival of the presidential campaign on Texas's shores. It was the first of the declared candidates or assumed candidates to come to Texas as mm -hmm. part of this. And we're going to blow that door wide open this weekend with a bunch of people who've not been to Texas in that capacity until now. Mm. Uh, well, and Patrick Spitek just published a fantastic story on our site about Pedro O'Rourke and kind of what's probably going to be the first thing he faces when right. he announces, if he announces. Well, uh, this question of whether he can scale and whether mm -hmm. it can scale. You know, he ran basically a Jesus Christ superstar campaign. <laughs> you know, it was the big guy up here and it was all the disciples down here at his feet, flowing robes, smoking pot, you know, the whole thing. It was not a campaign. <laughs> it was not a campaign of principles, which many of these campaigns often are where you've got the candidate, mm -hmm. but you've got some big dog campaign manager and you've got this person over here and it's like a whole bunch of people up at the same level. It was really about him. It was a campaign, the Senate race was really about aspiration and inspiration and personality more than it was about ideology and issues and party. And the question is, can that scale to 50 states? I mean, donor-wise, though, he is, I would think he's in a fairly good starting point in that he showed that he was able to amount 
well, small dollar donations from just about and everywhere. To, that is exactly the correct point to bring up because one of the things we'll be watching if he gets in this race is the first 24 hours, how much money does he raise online? Sanders raised more than $6 million when he got in the race. Blew everybody else out of the water. Before that, I think the record for a 24-hour raise by any of these candidates was Kamala Harris raised about a million and a half. So the Sanders thing was like, wow, this is, this is something else. What if Beto gets in the race and in the first 24 hours raises $10 million online, right? I mean, it's, that's some serious stuff. And presumably he has the same access to his list that he had during the Senate race, and those people are all kind of waiting to see what he does, right? They're following him around, what's going to happen. So that'll be a show of strength or not. And, and one thing Patrick's story explored was the fact that, you know, like that, and when that NFL video came out about, you know, him defending... Now this news thing. On yeah, when him, him defending uh, the players protesting during the national anthem, it kind of like set his trajectory nationally, but... It, it's what, what one thing some people told Patrick and told me about is just they feel like this is Obama in 07 where you heard him give this great speech and he seems really eloquent and passionate and a lot of liberals just kind of like reflect their views on him because they just assume this guy agrees with me and everything and they're about to it, find out Beto probably does not agree with them on everything. it sort of worked out for Obama if I'm right. remembering correctly. Spoiler. But this right? primary, the whole entire field seems to be moving more to the left. Uh, sh sure. I mean, I think the idea that somehow Beto O'Rourke is a committed centrist is is kind of hilarious. <laughs> Although his particular place along the spectrum last time during the Senate race was not really the issue, like I say. I sure, don't think yeah. it was about ideology. The, to my mind, the larger question that I have, mm. and it's addressed to some degree in Patrick's story, but really it's sort of more hanging out in the air, is he caught everybody off guard last time. He's not going to catch anybody off guard this time. Sure, yeah. And the other campaigns are going to be well-funded and, you know, Many of these people who are running have been prosecutors. Amy Klobuchar was a prosecutor. Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. These people are going to open him up like a soft peanut if they get their way. <laughs> and they're going to come at him, and they're not going to let him get away with not having a position on issues. They're going to come at him on some of the stuff that lingered from the last race. And so it's going to just be different. This is like being brought up to the majors if you're a baseball player. Welcome I mean, to the show, meet. At least That's it means it will hear more um, than just about his punk rock days. Although... Who among us does not love Foss? Yeah, but you know, when you're talking Have about... Have you listened Paul to the song? <laughs> oh, I, no, that was... Perhaps you didn't hear the sarcasm. <laughs> infusing that. But, but, but I hear you. You're exactly right. I mean, honestly, he came in the race... Because those were a lot of the attacks. It was just sort of a personality thing. Well, he ran as a rock star in every respect of that. Right? If you think about it. Yeah, one of the best quotes in Patrick's story is from um, Laura Moser, who ran for Congress as kind of like a Bernie Democrat. Lost in the Lizzie Fletcher primary in Dallas. Right, and she said, um, at some point, you can't just be the, the cool guy from college who skateboards. Like, we need to know policy-wise what he believes you in. You know, although, okay, but, I mean, I, this is, because the question is really, i go back to what I said, does this scale? Mm -hmm. There are people all over the, I mean, I, I think the interesting theory is if he just basically ran a campaign where he went into college campuses, and where there's like a receptive, the whole sort of receptive audience, googly-eyed over him. I mean, I don't know. There's kind of a... The other part of it is true, too, is that differentiated from the incumbent, you, the Democrats are going to have to field the ticket that is, in some respects, differentiated from the incumbent. And whatever else you say about Beto O'Rourke, positive or negative, he's differentiated from the incumbent sure. in a way that a lot of the people running maybe are, are aspire to be as well. So we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of time left for this, Amon. A lot of time. Uh, <laughs> uh, one last thing, Aliyah, I want to go full circle on public ed for a minute to talk about testing, specifically the STAR test and allegations that when it comes to reading, students are being tested one to three grades above their actual grade levels. 
Um, I'm reading from uh, Emily script mm -hmm. for this. What gives? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so high level, there's some studies that were years old mm -hmm. that have resurfaced um, recently in, in a Texas Monthly article, in a New York Times article actually earlier mm -hmm. this week, um, basically exploring the question of whether the STAR test is actually testing kids on grade level or if it's, you know, the passages are actually written to be one to three grades above grade level. Um, and, you know, the, the TEA, the Texas Education Agency, and the commissioner have been defending the test. But also I think he, in a hearing uh, this week, also maybe gave in a little bit that it was, you know, yes, the, the stakes are high, um, but he still defends the, the, he says it's a more rigorous test that, you know, national studies show that it's, um, you know, it's sort of predicting where Texas has been compared mm -hmm. to other states, um, which is pretty uh, stagnant on on reading, especially when you look at fourth grade reading. Um, you know, it gets it gets pretty wonky when you look at <laughs> what are the measures of like how complex a uh, text is. But I think ultimately, um, you know, it's it's a lot of um, advocates and and people who you know have long been trying to get the the stakes of the test rolled back, um, coming back around with a new. Um, you know, way to do this. Are alarm makers likely to do anything this session? It's that's not clear to me right now. I don't really know what's on the table. You know, there's there's a lot of bills that would say let's reduce the number of state required star mm. tests. Um, I forget what the, I think it's like. There's maybe six that that uh, Texas has that the the feds don't require. Mm. So if we wanted to roll it back, we could. Um, you know, without losing <laughs> any federal money. Um, and so that's most of the, the bills that have been filed right now. Um, I think it's a little too late in the game. Um, you know, like if they wanted to file a bill to change STAR in some way, that wouldn't be possible. But I'm not sure what's actually possible with, like, that the, t that the commissioner would be able to do on his own through mm -hmm. rulemaking without the, lawmakers. The question that's come up that you've reported on is whether the accountability metrics called for by the School Finance Commission tied to outcomes and tied to funding right. would necessarily be housed within the realm of the tests. And well, the speaker himself has said no. Right? Yes. And the House's bill actually does not include right. uh, testing in the, in that funding. So I think that conversation off the table. is off the table at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll just have to save that for the special session. Oh, God. <laughs> God. Oh, God, please. <laughs> That's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Alabama Cushetta Tribe of Texas, the Texas Bankers Association, the Texas X's, and Texas A&M University, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Evan, Aaliyah, Alexa, and our producers Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Amon. Thanks for listening.